chapters 8 and 9 of The Angel of Terror. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Allison Hester of Athens, Georgia. The Angel of Terror by Edgar Wallace. Chapter 8. And now, Mrs. Meredith, said Jack Glover, what are you going to do? He had spent the greater part of the morning with the new heiress, and Lydia had listened, speechless, as he recited a long and meaningless list of securities, of estates, of ground rents, balances, and the like, which she had inherited. "'What am I going to do?' she said, shaking her head hopelessly. "'I don't know. I haven't the slightest idea, Mr. Glover. It is so bewildering. Do I understand that all this property is mine?' not yet said jack with a smile but it is so much yours that on the strength of the will we are willing to advance you money to almost any extent the will has to be proved and probate must be taken but when these legal formalities are settled and we have paid the very heavy death duties you will be entitled to dispose of your fortune as you wish as a matter of fact he added you could do that now at any rate you cannot live here in brinksome street and I have taken the liberty of hiring a furnished flat on your behalf. One of our clients has gone away to the continent and left the flat for me to dispose of. The rent is very low, about twenty guineas a week. Twenty guineas a week? gasped the horrified girl. Why, I can't... And then she realized that she could. Twenty guineas a week was nothing to her this fact more than anything else brought her to an understanding of her fortune i suppose i had better move she said dubiously mrs morgan is giving up this house and she asked me whether i had any plans i think she'd be willing to come as my housekeeper excellent nodded jack you'll want a maid as well and of course you will have to put up jogs for the nights jacks she said in astonishment jacks repeated jack solemnly you see miss i beg your pardon mrs meredith i'm rather concerned about you and i want you to have somebody on hand i can rely on sleeping in your flat at night i dare say you think i am an old woman he said as he saw her smile and that my fears are groundless but you will agree that your own experience of last week will support the theory that anything may happen in london but really, Mr. Glover, you don't mean that I am in any serious danger. From whom? From a lot of people, he said diplomatically. From poor Miss Briggerland? She challenged, and his eyes narrowed. Poor Miss Briggerland, he said softly. She certainly is poorer than she expected to be. Nonsense, scoffed the girl. She was irritated, which was unusual in her my dear mr glover why do you pursue your vendetta against her do you think it is playing the game honestly now isn't it a case of wounded vanity on your part he stared at her in astonishment wounded vanity do you mean pique she nodded why should i be piqued he asked slowly you know best replied lydia and then a light dawned on him have i been making love to miss briggerland by any chance he asked 
"'You know best,' she repeated. "'Good Lord!' <laughs> and then he began to laugh, and she thought he would never stop. "'I suppose I made love to her, and she was angry because I dared to commit such an act of treachery to her fiancé. Yes, that was it. I made love to her behind poor Jim's back, and she ticked me off, and that's why I'm so annoyed with her.' "'You have a very good memory.' said Lydia, with a scornful little smile. "'My memory isn't as good as Miss Briggerland's power of invention,' said Jack. "'Doesn't it strike you, Mrs. Meredith, that if I had made love to that young lady, I should not be seen here today?' "'What do you mean?' she asked. "'I mean,' said Jack Lover soberly, "'that it would not have been Bulford, but i who would have been lured from this club by a telephone massage and told to wait outside the door in berkeley street it would have been i who would have been shot dead by miss briggerland's father from the drawing-room window the girl looked at him in amazement what a preposterous charge to make she said at last indignantly do you suggest that this girl has connived at a murder I not only suggest that she connived at it, but I stake my life that she planned it, said Jack carefully. But the pistol was found near Mr. Buford's body, said Lydia almost triumphantly as she conceived this unanswerable argument. Jack nodded. From Buford's body to the drawing room window was exactly nine feet. It was possible to pitch the pistol so that it fell near him. Bulford was waiting there by the instructions of Jean Briggerland. We have traced the telephone call that came through to him from the club. It was from the Briggerland's house in Berkeley Street, and the attendant at the club was sure it was a woman's voice. We didn't find that out till after the trial. Poor Meredith was in the hall when the shot was fired. The signal was given when he turned the handle to let himself out. He heard the shot, rushed down the steps, and saw the body. Whether he picked up the pistol or not, I do not know. Jean Briggerland swears he had it in his hand. But, of course, Jean Briggerland is a hopeless liar. You can't know what you're saying, said Lydia in a low voice. It is a dreadful charge to make dreadful against a girl whose face refutes such an accusation her face is her fortune snapped jack and then penitently i'm sorry i'm rude but somehow the very mention of jean briggerland arouses all that is worst in me now you will accept jaggs won't you who is he she asked he is an old army pensioner a weird bird as shrewd as the diggins in spite of his age, a pretty powerful old fellow. Oh, he's old, she said with some relief. He's old, and in some ways incapacitated. He hasn't the use of his rat arm, and he's a bit groggy in one of his ankles, as is the result of a boer bullet. She laughed in spite of herself. He doesn't sound a very attractive kind of guardian. He's perfectly clean, old bird, though, I confess. He doesn't look it, and he won't bother you or your servants. You can give him a room where he can sit, and you can give him a bit of bread and cheese and a glass of beer, and he'll not bother you. Lydia was amused now. It was absurd that Jack Glover should imagine she needed a guardian at all. 
But if he insisted, as he did, it would be better to have somebody as harmless as the unattractive Jags. Oh, what time will he come? At about ten o'clock every night, and he'll leave you at about seven in the morning. Unless you wish, you need never to see him, said Jack. How did you come to know him? she asked curiously. I know everybody, said the boastful young man, and you mustn't forget that I am a lawyer and have to meet very queer people. He gathered up his papers and put them into his little bag. And now, what are your plans for today? he demanded. She resented the self-imposed guardianship which he had undertaken, yet she could not forget what she owed him. By some extraordinary means, he had kept her out of the Meredith case, and she had not been called as a witness at the inquest. Incidentally, in as mysterious a way, he had managed to whitewash his partner and himself, although the Law Society were holding an inquiry of their own. This the girl did not know. It seemed likely that he would escape the consequence of an act which was a flagrant breach of the law. "'I am going to Mrs. Cole Mortimer's to tea,' she said. "'Mrs. Cole Mortimer?' he said quickly. "'How do you come to know that lady?' "'Really, Mr. Glover, you are almost impertinent.' She smiled in spite of her annoyance. "'She came to call on me two or three days after that dreadful morning. She knew Mr. Meredith and was an old friend of the family's.' "'As a matter of fact,' said Jack icily. She did not know Meredith, except to say, how do you do, to him, and she was certainly not a friend of the family. She is, however, a friend of Jean Briggerland. Jean Briggerland, said the exasperated girl. Can't you forget her? You are like the man in Dickens' books. She's your King Charles's head. Really, for a respectable and a responsible lawyer, you're simply eaten up with prejudices. Of course she was a friend of Mr. Meredith's. Why, she brought me a photograph of him taken when he was at Eton. Supplied by Jean Briggerland, said the unperturbed Jack calmly. And if she'd brought you a pair of socks he wore when he was a baby, I suppose you would have accepted those too? Now you are being really abominable, said the girl. And I've got a lot to do. He paused at the door. Don't forget you can move into Cavendish Mansions tomorrow. I'll send the key round, and the day you move in, Jags will turn up for duty, bright and smiling. He doesn't talk a great deal. I don't suppose you ever give the poor man a chance, she said cuttingly. End of chapter 8 Chapter 9 Mrs. Cole Mortimer was a representative of a numerous class of women who live so close to the borderline which separates good society from society which is not quite as good that the members of either set thought she was in the other. She had a small house where she gave big parties, and nobody quite knew how this widow of an Indian colonel made both ends meet. It was the fact that her menage was an expensive one to maintain. She had a car, she entertained in London in the season, and disappeared from the metropolis when it was the correct thing to disappear, a season of exile which comes between the Goodwood Race Meeting in the South and the Doncaster Race Meeting in the North. 
Lydia had been surprised to receive a visit from this elegant lady, and had readily accepted the story of her friendship with James Meredith. Mrs. Cole Mortimer's invitation she had welcomed. She needed some distraction, something which would smooth out the raveled threads of life which were now even more tangled than she had ever expected they could be. Mr. Rennett had handed to her a thousand pounds the day after the wedding, and when she had recovered from the shock of possessing such a large sum, she hired a taxicab and indulged herself in a wild orgy of shopping. The relief she experienced when he informed her he was taking charge of her affairs and settling the debts which had worried her for three years was so great that she felt as though a heavy weight had been lifted from her heart. It was in one of her new frocks that Lydia, feeling more confident than usual, made her call. She had expected to find a crowd at the house in Hyde Park Crescent, and she was surprised when she was ushered into the drawing room to find only four people present. Mrs. Cole Mortimer was a chirpy, pale little woman of forty-something. It would be ungallant to say how much that something represented. She came toward Lydia with outstretched hands. "'My dear,' she said with extravagant pleasure, "'I'm glad you were able to come. You know Miss Briggerland and Mr. Briggerland?' Lydia looked up at the tall figure of the man she had seen in the stalls the night before her wedding and recognized him instantly. "'Mr. Marcus Stephanie, I don't think you have met.' Lydia bowed to a smart-looking man of thirty, immaculately attired. He was very handsome, she thought, in a dark way, but he was just a little too new to please her. She did not like fashion-plate men, and although the most captious of critics could not have found fault with his correct attire, he gave her the impression of being overdressed.' Lydia had not expected to meet Miss Briggerland and her father, although she had a dim recollection that Mrs. Cole Mortimer had mentioned her name. Then in a flash, she recalled the suspicions of Jack Glover, which she had covered with ridicule. The association made her feel a little uncomfortable, and Jean Briggerland, whose intuition was a little short of uncanny, must have read the doubt in her face. Mrs. Meredith expected to see us, didn't she, Margaret? she said, addressing the twittering hostess. Surely you told her we were great friends. Of course I did, my dear. Knowing your dear cousin and his dear father, it was not remarkable that I should know the whole family. She smiled wisely from one to the other. Of course! How absurd she was, thought Lydia. She had almost forgotten, and probably Jack Glover had forgotten too, that the Briggerlands and the Merediths were related. She found herself talking in a corner of the room with the girl, and fell to studying her face anew. A closer inspection merely consolidated her early judgment. She smiled inwardly as she remembered Jack Glover's ridiculous warning. It was like killing a butterfly with a steam hammer, to lose so much vengeance upon this frail piece of china. "'And how do you feel now that you're very rich?' asked Jean kindly. "'I haven't realized it yet,' smiled Lydia." Jean nodded. I suppose you have to settle with the lawyers. Who are they? Oh, yes, of course. Mr. Glover was poor Jim's solicitor. She sighed. I dislike lawyers, she said with a shiver. They are so heavily paternal. They feel that they and they only are qualified to direct your life and your actions. I suppose it's second nature with them. 
Then, of course, they make an awful lot of money out of commissions and fees, though I'm sure Jack Glover wouldn't worry about that. He's a really nice boy, she said earnestly, and I don't think you could have a better friend. Lydia glowed at the generosity of this girl whom the man had so maligned. He has been very good to me, she said, although, of course, he is a little fussy. Jean's lips twitched with amusement. Has he warned you against me? she asked solemnly. Has he told you what a terrible ogre I am? And then, without waiting for a reply, I sometimes think poor Jack is just a little, well, I wouldn't say mad, but a little queer. His dislikes are so violent. He positively loathes Margaret, though why I have never been able to understand. He doesn't hate me, <laughs> laughed Lydia, and Jean looked at her strangely. No, I suppose not, she said. I can't imagine anybody hating you, Lydia. May I call you by your Christian name? I wish you would, said Lydia warmly. I can't imagine anybody hating you, repeated the girl thoughtfully. And, of course, Jack wouldn't hate you, because you're his client. A very rich and attractive client, too, my dear. She tapped the girl's cheek, and Lydia, for some reason, felt foolish. But, as though unconscious of the embarrassment she had caused, Jean went on. I don't really blame him, either. I have a shrewd suspicion that all these warnings against me and against other possible enemies will furnish a very excellent excuse for seeing you every day and acting as your personal bodyguard. Lydia shook her head. That part of it he has relegated already, she said, giving smile for smile. He has appointed Mr. Jaggs as my bodyguard. Mr. Jaggs? The tone was even. The note of inquiry was not strained. He's an old gentleman in whom Mr. Glover is interested, an old army pensioner. Beyond the fact that he hasn't the use of his right arm and limps with his left leg, and that he likes beer and cheese, he seems an admirable watchdog, said Lydia humorously. Jags, repeated the girl. I wonder where I've heard that name before. Is he a detective? No, I don't think so, but Mr. Glover thinks I ought to have some sort of man sleeping in my new flat, and Jags was duly engaged. Soon after this, Mr. Marcus Stepney came over, and Lydia found him rather uninteresting. Less boring was Briggerland, for he had a fund of stories and experiences to relate, and he had, too, one of those soft, soothing voices that are so rare in men. It was dark when she came out with Mr. and Miss Briggerland, and she felt that the afternoon had not been unprofitably spent. For she had a clearer conception of the girl's character, and was getting Jack Glover's interest into better perspective. The mercenary part of it made her just a little sick. There was something so mysterious, so ugly in his outlook on life, and there might not be a little self-interest in his care for her. She stood on the step of the house talking to the girl, whilst Mr. Briggerland lit a cigarette with a patent lighter. Hyde Park Crescent was deserted, save for a man who stood near the railings which protected the area of Mrs. Cole Mortimer's house. He was apparently tying his shoelaces. They went down on the sidewalk, and Mr. Briggerland looked for his car. "'I'd like to take you home. My chauffeur promised to be here at four o'clock. These men are most untrustworthy.' From the other end of the crescent appeared the lights of a car. 
At first, Lydia thought it might be Mr. Briggerland's, and she was going to make her excuses, for she wanted to go home alone. The car was coming, too, at a tremendous pace. She watched it as it came furiously toward her, and she did not notice that Mr. Briggerland and his daughter had left her standing alone on the sidewalk and had withdrawn a few paces. Suddenly, the car made a swerve, mounted the sidewalk, and dashed upon her. It seemed that nothing could save her, and she stood fascinated with horror, waiting for death. Then an arm gripped her waist, a powerful arm that lifted her from her feet and flung her back against the railings as the car flashed past the mudguard missing her by an inch. The machine pulled up with a jerk, and the white-faced girl saw Briggerland and Jean running toward her. I should never have forgiven myself if anything had happened. I think my chauffeur must be drunk, said Briggerland in an agitated voice. She had no words. She could only nod, and then she remembered her preserver, and she turned to meet the solemn eyes of a bent old man whose pointed white beard and bristling white eyebrows gave him a hawk-like appearance. His right hand was thrust into his pocket. He was touching his battered hat with the other. "'Beg pardon, miss,' he said raucously. "'Name of Jags, and I have reported for duty.'" End of chapter 9